0: How many Black children do you think need to go to a school before white parents think that's a bad school, right? What's a good school? What neighborhood is it shocking that that crime happened in? And it kind of begs the question, well, where should the crime have happened?
1: This podcast came to be because I want to reignite discussions about Pan-Africanism. And the purpose is to plant seeds of unity and inspiration among Africans, both at home and in the diaspora. I believe we have come to the stage where our continent is more vulnerable than ever. And it's up to us to decide our fate moving forward. What we will come to realize, I hope, is that we're so much more alike than we're different. And this show is just a small contribution to the public discourse that is going on in Africa right now. My name is Soshima Iro, and this is the Pan-African Experience. On today's episode of the Pan-African Experience, I'm going to be having a conversation with Dr. Robin DiAngelo. We're going to be discussing about her book, White Fragility. Why it's so hard for white people to talk about racism. Dr. DiAngelo is an Affiliate Associate Professor of Education at the University of Washington. Her research is in whiteness studies and critical discourse analysis. Tracing how whiteness is reproduced in everyday narratives. She's the two time winner of the Student Choice Award for the Educator of the Year at the University of Washington's School of Social Work. She is the author of the aforementioned book, White Fragility Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Race, and also the author of Nice Racism, her most recent book. I'm very grateful and honored to have Dr. Robin D'Angelo on the podcast. <music> D'Angelo, welcome to the Pan African Experience.
0: Oh, thank you for having me.
1: Okay, so yeah, you have you wrote a book called uh, White Fragility, why it's so hard for white people to talk about racism, and your most recent book is called Nice Racism, and uh, you have given several lectures and interviews on these topics. And usually, I will start my interview by asking my guests, you know, what inspired them to write their books, but I think for this podcast to set the tone for the podcast, I'm going to ask you a different question, which is, you know, what are some of the ways that your race has shaped your life? Oh, well,
0: such a powerful question. Um, the fact that it took me well into my 30s before I could ever a- answer that question, <laughs> before I ever considered that question, is one of the most profound ways that my race shaped my life. Um, In a society that is deeply separate and unequal by race, it's a question that white people are not socialized to think about and that is not benign it's not innocent it's not neutral it it is part of what holds this together so i would say from even before i was born my race was shaping my life in that we could literally and we could (laughs) predict whether my mother and i were going to survive my birth based on the fact that we were both white we could predict how long i'm going to live Based on the fact that I am white, uh, where I'm likely to live, uh, you know, just on and on and on. Every aspect, every breath of my life is shaped by my race. Um, And not being aware of that, of course, has consequences because then you can't challenge um, how that reinforces a racial hierarchy.
1: Okay, so you know when you say white fragility, you know what do you mean by that, and how does that manifest in our day-to-day lives?
0: Yeah, you know the fragility part is meant to capture how little it takes for white people to just melt down, <laughs> how sensitive, uh, how delicate our sensibilities, how upset and defensive we get. Um, at the merest challenge, there will be white people who just me saying the word white will cause them to be very, very upset. So we're fragile in that way, but it's not fragile at all in its impact. It's a a bit like uh, cut glass (laughs) Um, because our reactions have the whole weight of social uh, institutional cultural power behind them. And so it functions very powerfully to prevent people from challenging us, to prevent people from saying white and proceeding as if it has any meaning. And so it functions to protect our position within a deeply unequal society. Uh, So it's a kind of, I think of it as everyday white racial control, right? Um, We make it so punitive for you to challenge us that more often than not, you choose not to. (laughs) It's not worth it. Unfortunately, things are likely to get worse, not better. Uh, and so you just don't go there with us, and then that works just fine <laughs> for us.
1: Okay, so you know most of this assertion is with regards to white progressives.
0: Yeah, I do. I mean, w- everything I just said uh, for me includes all white people, and and let me just stop there for a moment because th- this is a this is a, a common way uh, place that white people get. Uh, defensive and upset is is the generalizing about white people. So let me say that, of course, we are all individuals, and I don't know every single white person or what their story is, but we are also members of a social group, uh, and by virtue of our membership in the social group, we can make the kinds of predictions I, I opened you know, in my answer to your question with. So there is a shared collective experience. We're swimming in the same water. We're receiving the same messages. We're consuming the same media. So we have to be willing to kind of set aside, you know, I'm so special and different and look at the patterns that shape all of our lives. Now, remind me of the question that cost me to go off in that direction.
1: No, no, yeah, I, I said, what are you referring to white progressives specifically? Yes.
0: So within that broad category of white, um, I tend to focus on white progressives because I am a white progressive. I know my people really, really well. Um, white progressives are are the people I'm more, most likely to be around. And I would imagine the the white people you're most likely to be around. I doubt that you're hanging around white nationalists, right? So if we understand racism as a system rather than as an individual you know, character flaw, but as a system, then we understand we're all in it and we all participate in it, right? There's no neutral place within that system. We're either upholding it or we're challenging it, right? Um, and While my enactment of my socialization into this system doesn't look like a white nationalist, it does look like something. Um, And if we think about racism more as a continuum rather than an either or, right? I was taught to see it as an either or. You're either racist or you're not racist. And if you're not racist, we're done. There's no more that you need to get involved with. Which beautifully, of course, <laughs> upholds racism. If you understand it as a continuum, you know, either more or less racist in any given moment, then I'm on a different end of the continuum than a white nationalist is, but I'm still on an end of it. Um, and so I want to help those of us who aren't white nationalists, who see ourselves as well meaning. Um Understand what the forms we enact look like. Okay, so the everyday.
1: Okay. Mm-hmm. I was wondering how how do you define white progressives?
0: Yeah, um, I, I don't mean it so much politically. I mean any white person who would would say I am against racism, um, who. Professes anything ranging from colorblind to um, even um, anti-racist activists, people who would see themselves as the opposite of an open white nationalist. So, um, more, and tend to be more liberal.
1: Okay. Okay. And then, and the claim is that white uh, in your book white fragility is that white progressives cause more daily harm across race right? If you can expand on this a little bit.
0: Sure. That's a very controversial statement, and I I do get asked about it a lot. Um, So it goes back to what I had said earlier. Odds are, on a daily basis, you don't socialize, at least not to your awareness, with white nationalists, with open racists. But there's a theme. Everywhere I go, um, where particularly in environments where uh, black people are in the minority, right, so that they're mostly living and working around white people, nice, well-intentioned white people. And the theme I hear from them over and over is, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. I can't, I can't get my hands on it. I'm undermined. Everywhere I go, and yet it's denied, there's a smile on the face. So I think we cause the most daily harm, those thousand little cuts that all add up um, and that are more insidious than the really blatant stuff that is easier for you to avoid or or challenge.
1: Yeah, I often say that obviously I don't condone uh, racism or uh, something of that nature, but. I often say that I'm more comfortable interacting with a Ku Klux Klan member or white nationalist, knowing fully well that he or she does not like me or does not, doesn't care about me, and we come to the table with without knowledge that we don't care about each other. Compared to someone that will smile in my face or possibly match with me in Black Lives Matter, but behind closed doors may take certain actions or have certain feelings that might be in direct opposite to that i'm assuming that's what uh, you're insinuating
0: yeah and, and i have heard i have heard that from many black people right in some ways almost a preference for the really um explicit because you know how to protect yourself uh when when it's right out there on the table Um, And and I would add a piece where maybe behind closed doors, yes, but maybe not even behind closed doors. And yet there's a worldview or framework that is infused with assumptions, that is infused with uh, what is termed anti-blackness that I don't even realize is anti-blackness, but it's coming through. You'll see it, here's a classic example, job interview, A black candidate is being discussed, um, maybe being compared with a white candidate, and there will be a lot of unconscious bias that goes into how that black candidate is assessed versus the white candidate. And sometimes it'll just come down to this vague (laughs) concept of fit you know i just really think that this is a better fit and they're not consciously thinking i don't want this person because they're black but there isn't any way that that person's blackness isn't informing how they assess them and and the research on implicit bias is
1: just really really clear
0: that that it's happening
1: <laughs> you know when uh White people say, I don't see color, you know, and they, uh, that they treat everybody the same. You know, I often ask them to quickly go and see an optician, you know, <laughs> but on a more serious <laughs> note, when a white person say they don't see color, you know, what do they really mean?
0: So, so first of all, let me just look in the eyes of any white person listening and saying, uh, no, you do not treat everyone the same. You just don't, no one does. It's not humanly possible. We're constantly responding to all kinds of cues uh, to their gender, to their race, to their uh, appearance around class, to their uh, status of, of ability. And you don't even want to treat everyone the same because people have different needs. So when I hear that, What it tells me is, one, this person doesn't understand culture, doesn't understand socialization, and is not particularly self-aware. This is not convincing to anyone who understands systemic racism. I mean, as a Black man, when a white person says to you, I don't see color, I treat everyone the same, are you thinking, all right, great, I am now with a very safe, aware white person?
1: You know, uh, by the way, I just wanted to tell you that, uh, just say a brief news from the UK, United Kingdom, cause um, not long ago, uh, the British government commissioned a, a report to see if there's systemic racism in the United Kingdom. And the report came out to say there is no systemic racism in the United Kingdom. Wow, <laughs> so, and then you were like, that's great news. That's, that's great. But, you know, there's another report that contradicted that because you know a, a few months later, there's what we call NHS National Health Service. They have NHS Health and Race Observatory. You know, a charity that was set up by the, the NHS, and they did a report, a report. They did a research, and they found uh, racial inequalities in the health system. It's, it's almost uh, unimaginable. You know, I think you mentioned, you know, black women are four times more likely to die in the UK when giving birth, et cetera, et cetera. So so many racial inequalities. So that contradicts the earlier reports that said there's no systemic racism in the United Kingdom.
0: Yeah, and they were likely looking for intentional, obvious, explicit examples. And systemic racism uh, is designed to be status quo, to be business as usual, to look neutral and still um, reproduce unequal outcomes. And you know, Ibrahim X Kendi says: by every measure across every institution, you're going to see racial inequality. You're going to see white people at the top and black people at the bottom. And there are really only two overall ways you can explain that. White people are superior, <laughs> and that's why we're at the top. Or Systemic racism, and you know, if you're not using systemic racism, then be honest. You're you're using white superiority to make sense of, of that outcome. So when people say, "I don't see color," again, that's not true. You do see color. <laughs> it does impact you, uh, and it, it's it's not something you chose. So it's not really a moral issue, but you need to be willing to to look at it. And I'll never forget being um, in front of a group with a Black man by my side. We were doing a um, co-led uh, workshop. And a white woman said to him, I, I don't even see you as Black. <laughs> now, of course, the, the the deeper assumption is I'll just pretend you're white, <laughs> um, which is not actually a compliment. But he said, well, one, is there anything wrong with your eyes? Because I am black. And you do see that, or you wouldn't have needed to make the point that you didn't see it. (laughs) Nobody says to me, I don't see you as white while we're having lunch. Okay. Um, But the next thing he said is, then how will you see racism? Because I am black, and I'm having a different experience than you are. And if you refuse to engage with that, um, you're not going to be in any way able to support me or to challenge that racism.
1: So is intent a factor in this discussion at all? You know, shouldn't we consider no. intent?
0: No, actually, I think it's irrelevant. Yes, it's it's nice to know that I didn't mean to offend you. I'm sure that's better than thinking I did mean to, But but that really doesn't have anything to do with the impact of my having offended you and white people often will use their intentions to dismiss in other words if i didn't mean to hurt you then it doesn't count that i hurt you and and you better let go of it i told you i didn't mean to and the discussion is done and i mean i just think that what could be more hurtful than that Yes, I didn't mean to hurt you, and yet I see that I have hurt you, and I care about that, and I want to repair that. That's such a different impact.
1: Do you believe that your books have made any impact in getting white people not to be defensive when challenged with regards to racial bias? Do you think there's been an improvement towards that?
0: Uh, Yes. I, I think that I've given language. Uh, certainly, I've given language not just to white people, but to black people. A lot of a lot of black people have said, you know, I totally have this experience. I you know, I could have written this book. Um, but I didn't really have the language to talk about, especially when white people are telling me it's not happening, right? Um, I, I believe I made it harder to get away with white fragility <laughs> now that we have language to to call it in. And I also want to say that my, condition, my conditioning into white supremacy is ongoing. It, it didn't end at some point in my life. It's coming at me. All the time. And so, if I don't keep it up, reading one book, it, there's no way. And if you only read my book and there was no change, then it's really meaningless. And if you're not listening to Black people and other people of color, I'm hoping that because I'm white, because I'm an insider, and because I can name things in a way that are different than the way you can name them, that that would open white people up more to now listen (laughs) to black folks they weren't listening to before. So all those things need to happen. And when they do happen, I'd say my my book has made a difference. And if they're not happening, it doesn't make a difference.
1: Okay, so uh, I I tried to put this, uh, you know, you said that white people use absence of uh, black people as a measurement of value i think i heard that in one of your interviews you know can you expand on this uh, please yeah
0: i think one of the most profound messages of white supremacy so let me let me back up i i doubt your listeners will be uncomfortable with my use of the term white supremacy but just in case it's It's a highly descriptive sociological term to describe a society in which white people are held up as the standard for human, the measurement of what it means to be human and what it means to be an ideal human. And then everyone else is compared to that standard, conscious or not, and of course, is never going to meet it. Um, So I think one of the most profound messages of that system is that I could live, love, work, play, die in racial segregation as a white person with no sense whatsoever that anyone or anything of value has been lost. So most white people live segregated lives. Most white people go from cradle to grave in racial segregation and not only don't see anyone missing, <laughs> uh, any, any perspective or relationship of value missing, but actually the whiter it is, the more segregated it is, the more value and status it has. And if, w- if white people are being honest, we know that. We measure the value of a space by the absence of black people. The more black people there are, the less status that space is going to have. How many black children do you think need to go to a school before white parents think that's a bad school? Right. What's a good school? What neighborhood is it shocking that that crime happened in? And it kind of begs the question: Well, where should the crime have happened if it shouldn't have happened here in this nice, white, safe neighborhood? It's a really, it's a really deep message. Uh, the comfort with which we feel uh, segreg the comfort in which we live a segregated life
1: you cited an example of a text exchange uh, you had with uh, what is a friend that's talking about someone that is looking for a, 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 a property somewhere. Can you highlight that just for you know most of my <laughs> listeners that might not be aware of this story?
0: sure so i I'm on a text. Uh, text messaging with a friend, and she texts, oh, you know, Susie and Jane bought a house in New Orleans, and they only paid $25,000. But of course, Susan had to buy a gun, and now they're afraid to go outside. So I immediately know it's a Black neighborhood. This is what I call danger discourse the way white people kind of talk to each other about race and reinforce the ideas of black space as dangerous without coming out and saying it and then i so i reply oh i assume it was a black neighborhood and she says yes and she repeats how afraid uh, jane is (laughs) and she said i wouldn't pay 25 cents um and then i wrote well i i'm not looking i'm not asking because i'm interested in buying there i'm asking because i'm writing in my book how white people talk about race without actually coming out and talking about race and then she immediately replies oh i wouldn't want you to move there it's too far away so when i put more m- I mean, I put race directly on the table when I said, I assume it's a black neighborhood. I could, but then when I went the next step and actually named it as as white discourse, she immediately switches over to, it's, really, it's not about danger, it's really about my missing you. So it's just a classic way that we reinforce those boundaries um, without ever having to own up to the fact that that's what we're doing. And, you know, Jane and Sue, where they bought that house, give them 10 years. It's not going to be a black neighborhood anymore.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, Dr. D'Angelo, this is, uh, as this is a journalism podcast, I will, even when I agree with you, I will present alternative views uh, to okay. you in order to balance out the, the discussion. So, so, with regards to this, you know, let's say, I know you've mentioned how movies or whatever we watch can influence people, you know? But I've seen, I've never been to America, by the way, but I've seen, you know, 48 hours in custody or some statistics about inner cities in Chicago, about violence, you know. So even as a black man, I wouldn't want to live in such neighborhood with my uh, black, my seven-year-old son. So a case can be made that the element of safety there. Now we can make the argument that there's racial factors that, that led to the environment being the way it is. There are social factors, there are racial factors that led to the area being neglected and the environment being neglected. But that's not the discussion now. The discussion now is, is already neglected, Is already dangerous. So why would a white person not wanting to live there be seen as uh, racism? Yeah, so, so you're acknowledging that,
0: that- neighborhoods in which, say, Black people are concentrated, that's not natural. Um, You know, sometimes I hear people say, well, people just want to be with their own. It's natural. And I I would buy that if um, resources were distributed equally. (laughs) But I don't think some people want to be with their own with no resources and other people with all the resources. So, so, So that concentration is structural. It's the result of decades of policies and practices that continue into the present um, and, and everything from being prevented to build wealth uh, through home ownership and so forth to um deep racism in, in uh, medical institution and so on so let's establish that 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 is a setup um not not some kind of natural thing to a, a particular group of people. And, and then the next thing I want to do is kind of challenge a little bit this idea of safety and crime. Because Ahmad Arbery was jogging in a nice white neighborhood when he was killed. Trayvon Martin was in a gated community when he was murdered, right? So this idea of safe neighborhood, from whose perspective? Are white neighborhoods safe for Black people? Um, I, I wouldn't. Relax around that, right? Um, and then let's look at how we define crime and the difference and the focus on petty crime, small crime. I, I, I steal your stereo. It's not right. Um, versus what the Sadkers did with the uh, opiate crisis <laughs> and the millions of people who have died and the absolute lack of consequences or criminal prosecution the Sadkers have paid. So I'm not excusing that, but I I think we have to have a much more nuanced understanding and approach to it. I think um, it should be clear that the approach to to petty crimes, as we see more one-on-one individual crimes rather than huge structural crimes right, that the sadcurs could perpetrate because they are backed with the power of the institutions, Um, punishment is not the answer. And so now we move to uh, the difference in crack cocaine crisis in the 80s and 90s to the opiate crisis now, and the way that we're treating those two crises when one was associated with Black people and the other one with white people. And we're treating the opiate crisis as a mental health, right? as a kind of uh, we need to help these people. We're not putting them in jail. But we responded to crack cocaine, and I'm sure you know, differently than even regular cocaine. The cheaper, the <laughs> the, the harsher the penalty. Um, and then you have people who are become felons because of the way the criminal justice system responds to the to drugs. Who cannot vote, who cannot get jobs, and I'm just hoping you're seeing it's it, it's just this layered
1: impact. And, and yeah, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yes, you know, I, I agree with regards to systemic uh, racism. Of course, you know, anyone that wouldn't uh, agree with that is um, uh, doesn't make sense. You know, there's been studies to establish that, that, that there are even anecdote, uh, anecdote from anecdote uh, experience. You know, I have mm. experienced uh, things like that, but just the 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 idea of looking to live in a safe neighbor, neighborhood. I can see the broader picture, you know, because most of those quote-unquote unsafe neighborhoods in America historically have had, like, some racial element that led to the uh, neglect and, you know, uh, so many things that can be attributed to, to the race, racial discrimination in America, you know, how maybe how funds is allocated and things like that. But the fact that it's already been neglected, with the idea that someone might choose not to live there, maybe might not shouldn't be looked at strictly as the person is racist, because that might not be the case for everyone.
0: Yeah, but I think where it might be useful for us to focus is on is on what I call the discord, the narrative, okay. like what what. Why tell that story in that way, and what did it do for us as two white people engaged in that, right? So if I wasn't who I was and hadn't been doing the work that I've been doing and couldn't resist the messages coming through, uh, that would have reinforced anti-Blackness. Yeah. Right. That. Oh my God. You know. You. You. You go in a black neighborhood. If you don't have a gun, you know, you're you, something very bad's going to happen to you. So, and that's going to be at play when you come to apply for a job from me, and when you come to get a loan from me, or when you go in front of me as a judge, and so forth, and so it's a piece. It may be subtle but it contributes to the structural outcomes because structures are made up of individual people, and, and but because they're homogeneous in who controls them, we're bringing our biases into that. So, so that's what I wanted to use that example for, is, is, is look at how white people re- reproduce anti-blackness okay. without coming out and doing it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can see, I can see your point. And m- most of the debate that I've had with uh, some black people, and I've had you discuss with other people, is the idea that if it's possible for a white woman to be dating a black guy or married to a black guy and still be racist, and that, <laughs> and I've had a situation where I was dating a, a white woman, and um, everything outside, you know. Or, outside the intimacy of the relationship every other conversation is all you know black people this you know africans this they will do this to you they will do that to you so this start going on and on uh, uh, you know and when i discuss this to my friends i'm like she sounds like a racist and they will be like there's no way she can be a racist this is your girlfriend you know things like that but because I've had you discuss this with someone and that uh, I was saying, "Wow, I've had this experience before and I you know slowly slowly I lost uh, any form of interest or attraction to this person you know because of that, you know because every other thing, okay, maybe I'm considered as the special one or the one that is not like the rest of them, you know from her conversation. So uh, this is something that comes across in your conversation with people quite a lot. Oh,
0: I'm so glad you gave me the opportunity to speak to that. So first of all, let's start with that. That woman saw you as an exception to a rule. And and all rules have exceptions, but we need to go look at the rules she's operating from, right? So she pulled you out and said, you're different, but most of them are like this. How is that not racist? Um, and would you say that um, men who regularly beat their female partners have some sexism and some anti-woman in them that they don't respect women? Yeah, of course. Okay. And how many men beat their partners? Many do. And they live with them and they love them and they're married to them and they still have deep anti-woman feelings. If we could agree that Harvey Weinstein was a misogynist, or Jeffrey Epstein, a misogynist. Both of them, well, in Epstein's case, he had a girlfriend. And in Weinstein's case, he was married. That didn't free him from being sexist. Uh, I am married to a man. I love him. He's a white man. He clearly loves me. Uh, But he's a product of patriarchy, just like I am. And sometimes some unexamined assumptions come out and we deal with them. So this, this it's kind of a ridiculous idea that you're free of all your conditioning and that it always has to be the really blatant stuff. See, they're going again with that definition. Racism is conscious, intentional, dislike and meanness. And if you don't have that, it can't be racism.
1: <laughs> wow, so yeah, it's very interesting to, to, to hear you talk about that and also discuss that with other people, because people find it difficult to distinguish that, you know to go, go beyond the surface the surface value of that. So uh, I don't know uh, go ahead, please. Do you want to say something? Um, um,
0: there are many white people who become very uh, offended when I say all white people are racist. Right. So so everybody just breathe. I did just say that all white people are racist. Uh, Or they'll say, do you think, you know, are you saying all white people are racist? So usually before I answer that, I say, well, that depends on what that means to you. If you are defining racism as intentional conscious meanness, then of course, not all white people are racist. And of course, that would be an offensive thing for me to say, I agree with you. That's not what I'm saying. I'm understanding racism as a system that we are all embedded in and we have all absorbed. And all white people absorb it. All Black people absorb it too. But the impact is not the same. Right? Um, The message is not the same. What I have to challenge within myself is, is an ongoing lifelong message that I am inherently superior to you. I mean, I hate to say that, but I mean, I'm not going to deny that all my life, that's the message I've gotten. And all your life, on some level, you've gotten a message that you're inferior to me. These are very sensitive issues. Our work on them should be separate. It's not really my business to talk to you about that. (laughs) Um, But we all have it. Um, And so that's what I mean when I say all white people absorb that Uh, Any white person who says they've never gotten the message that it's better to be white, everybody knows it's better to be white. Not not that white people are better, but it's better to be white. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Come on. We all know that. Do you think that doesn't shape the way I feel about myself and the way I see myself and that it's not inside me? It okay. is. And, right. and it doesn't mean I'm, I don't feel guilty about that. I didn't choose it. Yeah. It's actually kind of exciting to be able to, like, work on that. I don't want that. Yeah. I didn't choose it, but I got it. So let's take responsibility for it and try to root it out.
1: I forgot the name of the, uh, the, 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 the lady and the speaker that always, she speaks about race. A lot. And then she will say to a group of white people, anyone that will want to swap their lives with a black man or a black person, stand up, you know? (laughs) Jane Elliott. Jane Elliott, yes. And nobody will stand up. (laughs) So uh, it's it's quite funny to to see that. And with regards to um, socializing, how, you know, the society socializes, like maybe a white kid to feel superior, to become superior. You know, there was a video that went viral in... um, in the UK here in 2018 is about a video of a mother speaking to her daughter about a cookie, you know, the daughter ate a cookie. And asking the, she was asking the daughter, you know, who ate the cookie? And the daughter said, you know, maybe someone broke into the house and ate the cookie. And the mother said, you know, how can someone break, this is like maybe three or four years old uh, kid, and the mother said, "How can someone break into the into the house and it uh, didn't take the jewelries, it didn't take the TV, it just ate the cookie and, and, and left?" And the kid said, "Oh, it's probably a black man." And the mother laughed. It become like a, a you know a funny thing on the internet. It went viral. Where are they gone? I don't know. You don't know. So who ate them all? Uh, someone
0: come around and.
1: They just ate them all. Someone come around and ate the cakes? Yeah. So someone broke into a home and ate Mr. Kipling's angel slices. Didn't take the TV, didn't take, you know, some jewellery. They took these cakes.
0: And it was a black man.
1: Now, when I'm looking at this, I'm thinking this kid, one way or the other, has been socialised to think that you know, a black man or black people are the other, you know, they are the ones that are most, most likely to steal. They are the ones that are most likely to, to do uh, negative things. They are, they are the most inferior uh, set of uh, people. And this kid now will grow up to become a policeman or a medical doctor or, 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 you know, within the system. And then she will make her decision. Every decision she makes in that position will pass through the filter of that socialization, that racial socialization.
0: But so deeply internalized, she's no longer aware of it at any kind of conscious level, which makes it all the more dangerous. Um, Research shows that by three to four children understand that it's better to be white. Um, and and you can see videos with the doll experiment. What's the good doll? What's the bad doll? You know, not every black child says that the you know black doll is bad, but by by far most of them do. Uh, so this it's it's on us to try to read the read the signs. It's not going. It's likely that no one said directly to that child, "Black people are bad." So now we better start paying attention to the nicer ways that we convey that. So that story that that my friend told me is one of those ways. Right? That we reinforce these ideas.
1: Now, you know, obviously like you always say, it's not uh, your job for what we do on our end, but the, the purpose of this podcast is to re- re-educate, you know, black people, to go back to root because what we are discussing now is 400 years of uh, damage, so to speak, you know. These 400 years of damage, whether we have to talk about, you know, the missionary services or the Christianity in Africa, that was, Christianity was brought in Africa, the idea of a white Jesus, you know, that savior, you uh, blonde hair blue eye that that was presented to Africa people are looking up to that as the god you know there's some psychological element to that and that's what we discuss quite a lot uh, on this podcast and um, so these are things that we have to go on ourselves why why people are having their own discussion to find out you know whatever issues they have to overcome we are going on this side to have our discussion and how to you know, break those uh, shackles or break those uh, those patterns that we have learned maybe subconsciously or consciously. So find a way to relearn certain things and certain perceptions on our end and do our work on that side, you know? So that's why when people, yeah, yeah go ahead, please.
0: Well, I was thinking when you were talking about the white Jesus and, and also our language, light and dark, you know, black heart, you know, black as night, dark as Africa. I mean, it just, it's just on so many levels of being reinforced. Um, so you're talking about what's sometimes called colorism. Um, and Rezma Menekum is a black man. He's a racial trauma specialist. And he says, the white body is the standard by which all bodies humanity shall be measured. So the white body is the standard of what it means to be human. So every hue, H-U-E, every hue away from that white standard is further away from human. So another way to say that is the darker you are, the less human and also therefore the more compounded the oppression. And everybody internalizes it. So, so people of color, Act that out amongst each other, and that that's part of the work of of addressing what you've internalized. We we talked about that uh, earlier.
1: Okay, uh, Doctor D'Angelo. So at this part of the podcast, like I I always tell you, uh, you know, I wouldn't justify my journalism degree if I don't delve into these areas. Okay. I'm not sure if you're aware of um, John Mark uh, Hooter. You're aware of? Oh yes. And you're oh, aware, yes. You're aware of uh, his criticism of your book? Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. John uh, Makuta, for uh, my audience who might not know, is a contributing writer at The Atlantic. You know, he teaches linguistics at Columbia University. He wrote an article titled, dehumanizing, The Dehumanizing Condescension of White Fragility. In, this article was published in The Atlantic on July 15, 2020. An excerpt from this article reads, and I'll "The angelo insinuates that when white women cry upon being called racist, black people are reminded of white women crying as they lied about being raped by black men eons ago. But how will she know where is the evidence for this presumptuous claim end quote
0: yeah so so let's start with um John mcWhorter is a black man, and he is He is conservative. In that same article, he, now remember that this is the summer of 2020 when that article came out. So the summer of George Floyd and the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement globally. And in that article, he says, not only has he rarely ever experienced racism, but it has been an advantage to be Black. And I wouldn't wish anything else on him, but I do not believe he speaks for the vast majority of Black people.
1: uh, I, don't so want to, I don't want to cut you off. I completely disagree with him on that. I was gonna come to that. But, right. Okay. Uh, go ahead.
0: But I think it's important that that you think about. So, who is this? What is his relationship to anti-racism? Uh, what is his, you know, um, his record, if you will? And his record is very, very conservative. I, I would put him with Ben Carson and Clarence Thomas and um, uh, other folks like that. So. When he asked where's my evidence, it is years, 25 years of of day in and day out for a living. Right, I didn't just show up in the summer of 2020 um, holding these conversations uh, often uh, in interracial teams with mixed groups and hearing testimony after testimony. Um, I am sharing what has been shared with me about how frustrating it is for Black people when white women, when called on their racism, start crying and become the victim. And everybody is conditioned to soothe the white woman. We're not conditioned to soothe the Black woman, right? Um, And how it impacts the entire group dynamic. So that's, that's where it's coming yes. from.
1: Yeah, that may, that may well be the case, but I think what he's insinuating is, you know, because your book will fall under social sciences, correct? Mm-hmm. And yes. to, to make that assertion under social sciences, there has to be some level of research or data to show that. You say, you know, they're in, they're out or living. So that means that's anecdote. So anecdote, uh, as as it may be scientifically speaking, to make a conclusive assertion, there has to be evidence. Maybe a survey or a survey of women age 20 to 45 that say, you know, when when white women cry or you know something of that nature. I I, I believe that's what he didn't make that clear in the article. But for someone that has that research background, was thinking that's what he's insinuating. Do you think that right. your book requires that?
0: i hear you um i actually don't uh, my my book is heavily footnoted um but i am an academic and i come out of academia also by the way he opens by calling me a diversity trainer so he opens by undermining my credentials (laughs) i have as much academic credential as he has um so i often wonder if you have to misrepresent somebody's argument in order to dismiss it why, why are you doing that um but nonetheless I deliberately took uh, "White Fragility," the book, out of academia so that I could just share all that I have learned at this point. Right? That that is not a requirement when you have a non-academic book. It's it's in, it's a sense. Well, while there's certainly uh, much research cited. There's also lots of, and here is what I have come to understand by. All of these years of both research and personal experience. So that's fine. Uh, I will give it, I, I would give that to him that I didn't have a research uh, study to cite that observation up. Uh, but I'd like to see his research to cite uh, that it's been an advantage to be Black.
1: Yes, that's what I wanted to say, because that's where I think uh, there's a flaw in his argument in that particular statement that he said he has yeah. experience racism now and now and again, you know, now and then, you know, but he has not um, prevented him from uh, uh, access to societal resources or something like that, or he has helped him to even access. So that statement is why I disagree with, because he said that since the CC, there has been upward mobility for black people in the middle class, and he, he did not cite any studies or data to show that. So he's making the same mistake <laughs> The same thing he's accusing you of uh, doing is also making that uh, mistake of saying that black people have had upward mobility since the 60s, you know, and hence racism might not be a factor. And that uh, is, I would disagree with that because I would like to see his studies, you know, how many black people are in the middle class from the 60s and how many are there now? You know, what's the upward mobility rate? What are the you know factors? What are the numbers on that? And they did not provide that, so that that becomes you know the same brush that is trying to paint you with, is now going to be painted with.
0: Yeah. Um, what's been interesting for me, so as an academic, I expect my work to be engaged with. Uh, this is the peer review process to be uh, critiqued. Of course, the ideas and the concepts. You know, no one person gets every nuance right on something as incredibly nuanced and sensitive as race but but i was surprised at how personal that article is how how personal it is to me as a human right he's not he's calling me a preacher and a pastor and a you know um and i just find that interesting uh i do think gender also has something to do with the level of critique but th- if there's one thing that i have really understood over these years since white fragility put me so visible. Why would we expect any one person to have the correct answer by everybody on something like racism? (laughs) Um, It's okay with me that I didn't get everything right. Um, It's clear to me by the millions of people who have resonated with the book that I've gotten enough right, that I have made a positive impact for many people. There are scholars who I respect deeply, like Michael Eric Dyson, uh, Ibra Mix-Kindy, um Heather McGee, uh, Jonathan Capehart, you know, who, who elevate my work. And, you know, I displeased John McWhorter.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, any, any idea or any uh, notion that one may have can be fine-tuned, you know, over time. And, mm-hmm. as this, and as I already have this and I already have this research, I'll go further ahead to read some of this for you and see what your response is. Yeah. I, I think uh, Mark Hutter went ahead and said, you know, I quote, you know, an especially weird passage is where D'Angelo breezily decries the American higher education system, in which she says, no one ever talks about racism. Then she's referring to you. I can get through graduate school without ever discussing racism. She writes, referring to you. I can graduate from law school without ever discussing racism. I can get through a teacher education program without ever discussing racism. Then he continued. I am mystified that D'Angelo thinks laughably I am mystified that D'Angelo thinks this laughably antique depiction reflects any period after roughly 1985. For example, an education school curriculum neglecting racism in our times will be about as common as home unwired for electricity." You know, end quote. So he's trying to say that the idea, the, the notion that you're saying that race is not being discussed in education system, is laughable
0: Uh, and i would say that he would say it's being discussed as laughable i am a professor of education and i I can assure you it is not it might be uh following the summer of 2020 which is the summer he wrote that but he's saying since the 80s i mean i don't know if you went to a, a western university but was a discussion of racism integrated in the curriculum I have a PhD and I can tell you that it is typically a special class or an elective that yes. you seek out. It is not integrated. That, that's just for me, patently not true. What he is
1: saying. I did my undergraduate here in University of Aberdeen here in Scotland, and I chose an elective course, course uh, called sustainable development. And there mm-hmm. we talked about post-colonial stuff and some mm-hmm. books from African authors and things like that but it's an elective course that you have to choose to to take, yeah. but not integrated into the curriculum, uh, so to speak, as a core subject.
0: Well, and the irony in the US is now there are laws in at least 28 states that would make sure it legally can never be integrated into the curriculum.
1: <laughs> okay. So um, I have uh, more, uh, just a few more of this. You know, are okay. you familiar with, uh, an, are you familiar with Raluca Bejan? Have you heard the name before? Are you familiar with her? Mm-hmm. R- Raluca Bejan is an assistant professor of social work at Dalhousie University. And she wrote an article titled Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility Ignores the Differences Within Whiteness. You know, this article was published in the conversation on August 27, 2020. And I'll read uh, some of the excerpts from this uh, article as well to see what your thoughts are. And uh, i quote, first, D'Angelo takes whiteness to be homogeneous, and phrases like white collective, white dynamic, white voice, white frame of reference, white worldview, white experience, are all used to suggest a certain racial sameness. Now seeing racialization as containing different identities while denying the fact that diversity also exists within whiteness falsely suggests that all whiteness is to be treated equally. It is, similar in, it is a similar stretch to suggest that whiteness makes one de facto entitled. Consider the treatment of seasonal workers from Eastern Europe who have been laboring in Germany during the COVID-19 pandemic. Their stories of abuse have made headlines. How reasonable is it to consider these workers entitled when they are not even extended basic human rights? End quote. What's your response to that? With regard, so your
0: opening your opening question to me was, "What does it mean to be white?" and In my experience, most white people, certainly at the time that I wrote White Fragility, could not answer that question. So this is an issue of audience. Um, I am am challenging the average white person in the basics of understanding whiteness. So no, it's not multi-layered and super nuanced in that kind of thing. That's the first thing, is audience, right? The second thing is I know, I know white people. I've been, I've been walking into rooms for 25 years trying to talk to white people about racism, and we will slip out from any, any connection that we can. And you've probably seen this. Any exit out, we will take. So, oh, well, I'm white, but I'm also queer, so it's not the same. I'm white, but I'm a woman, and so I'm oppressed, so it's not the same. Well, I grew up poor, so it's not the same. And so I'm trying to close those doors and just like, you need to just sit in this place of, yes, you are queer. You are white and queer. So you do not have the same experience as if you were black and queer. So we're going to sit in this collective experience. Uh, and I feel quite comfortable doing that. Uh, there, there is an article I wrote in 2014 on the intersection of race and class because I grew up in poverty. And it would be one of the diversities or nuances that this writer would have called out. And I am clear that I had a different experience of poverty because I was white that my whiteness helped me escape poverty, my whiteness helped me navigate poverty, and I was not also dealing with racism as I was dealing with classism. So I made a point uh, of including that piece in my new book, Nice Racism. Uh, But I I feel fine about her critique because um, uh, for for those reasons. I, I wasn't trying to hit every possible thing. I was trying to hold people on the one thing that we don't want to look at, I, white people would much rather look at all the places they're diverse than than where they share a racial identity.
1: Yeah, and I, I will give you my thoughts on, uh Bergen, Please uh, do. Yeah, uh, letter boy. I just want to read this one uh, for you. Uh, then I will give you my thoughts on on her response to your your, your book. Okay. Here, she's referring to capitalism and labor, uh, and i quote, D'Angelo takes as racial markers factors that will be more fruitfully treated as aspects of systems that distribute advantages and disadvantages. She writes, referring to you, whites produce and reinforce dominant narratives of society, such as individualism and meritocracy. Then she continues, uh, Berjan continues, but there is no race that could possibly have individualism ingrained in its collective thinking. Rather, it is something learned through the socioeconomic system. What would D'Angelo say about whites in the post-Soviet or the post-communist bloc? Clearly individualism, a value closely related to capitalism, was not a fissure of the former communist regimes. The book also assumes that there is some kind of an unspoken agreement among whites to protect their societal advantages that cuts across class and other group allegiances. But this is not universal. Why race and class are closely connected in the United States as evidenced by the fact that racialized people are overrepresented in low-paid jobs. In the United Kingdom, for example, Southeastern Europeans, whites, work in low-skilled occupations alongside racialized migrants. In Greece, these low-skilled positions are occupied by Albanians." End quote. So what's your response uh, to this?
0: Well, try not to roll my eyes. Um, <laughs> I I'm really clear that this is U.S. based, so so it feels kind of a, an unfair stretch to start talking about post communism and Albanian and other, you know, in the U.S. Um, when it comes to race and whiteness it is very patterned and common and predictable for white people to move over to somewhere where they're more different. So to move over into individualism and refuse to look at the collective experience, which is also something I said to you earlier. Yes, we're individuals and we have all these other intersections, but we have to be willing to also look at the shared experience. Sure, the way we experience whiteness can have differences and nuances, but that's not the book I was writing. That's one thing. Um, I do think there's an unspoken agreement amongst white people to protect our positions, to protect whiteness. It's called white solidarity. Um, it, It makes it very, very hard if you... I would imagine you've experienced it. <laughs> you know, we pull ranks and we'll pull ranks across all of these lines. So let me give you the example of affirmative action. The number one group who benefited from affirmative action in the US, white women. Why? Because when white men who had the blue collar jobs that women were locked out of, were pushed to include them, th- to include others through affirmative action, who did they include? white women, right? Why? Because white women are their wives, their partners, their daughters, their sisters. Suddenly, gender, they came together across gender in order to protect whiteness. Uh, So I stand by it. And I'm sure a very, very fascinating book could be written on some of those nuances, and I'd, I'd love her to write it.
1: Of course, white people, what would like to protect their, uh, that uh, hierarchical structure that they have. Of course, you, you know, I'm from Africa, I'm from Nigeria. Uh, uh, originally. So we ha- you have some post-colonial structures that are still in place, you know, for example, the Queen of England is still the Queen of Commonwealth. And it's the Royal Family still maintaining that grasp of Commonwealth and Commonwealth are former colonies, you know, which consists of mostly African countries, you know, I think Canada is there as well. But, you know, they don't want to let go. So the idea that someone will argue against that, you know, you know white people, white system is trying to uphold that, uh, you know, they don't want to let go of that uh, superiority of that hierarchical structure that they currently have. You can see that in Africa, you know, whether it's French influence in most African countries or British influence or uh, U.S. influence. So that is undeniable for someone that is uh, critical, but the flaw in Bergen's argument, I will say, is that she treated white entities or blocks in in isolation. Right, you know, of course, among white people, there are different classes, you know, the well-off and the not so well-off, the entitled and the not so entitled. But when you look at the dynamic between white people and black people in white countries, you know, even if we have to use those countries that she cited, like Poland or or, uh, Bulgaria, Slovenia, Turkey, you know, Ukraine, within those countries, black people are still treated as second-class citizens, as the bottom of the, the pole. So when you look at it, not in isolation of, oh, let's just look at white people, but look at white people in relation to black people. Yes. And then you will now see that uh, entitlement and that uh, protection of hierarchy, you know. And then I interviewed a Nigerian living in Ukraine, and he's, he told me how struggle to find apartments, you know, uh, landlords will not rent to them. They said, uh, you know, dirty. And when the landlords agree to rent to them, the prices are hiked. you know, uh, you know, very high. So now someone will also be saying, oh, Ukrainian people or Polish people, the same with Poland, the same, the same scenarios with black people uh, or Africans living in Poland or those Southeastern European countries that she's talking about, you know? So when you put a black person in that equation, they automatically assume the position of superiority immediately. So that's mm-hmm. the flaw in her argument because she is trying to counter your, your book by treating white people in isolation let just you know let just put white people in isolation and have so that's the flaw in in argument but your argument I'm not speaking for you but I think your book you're trying to look at the dynamic between white people and black people and how they're trying to maintain that superiority over black people or in relationship right. to black people
0: right across all lines right so you're a coal miner who's going to get the the most dangerous of the coal mining jobs is going to be black people you know and i'm thinking about tucker carlson who i'm sure you know who he is um and this this drumbeat of racism this drumbeat of replacement theory over and over and over across hundreds of shows and millions upon millions he's the most watched uh, you know show in in the country, mostly white people. So th- those white people listening to Tucker Carlson, one white person, all the millions have all those nuances she's talking about, but they're all getting the same message over and over and over. Now, how they integrate the message into their other, but they're all integrating it, so, yeah.
1: Yeah, so I think when, when we're talking about this, it's good to look at it um, in a broader sense in relation to black people, because most of the, You know, I try to do my research. Most of the counter-argument that I've seen has always been, oh, there is generalization in your book, there's broad generalization, and then there is, uh, you know, no data or or things like that. Most of the things you said in your book, I don't think someone that is being um, constructive will say that that is way offline, you know? (laughs) I understand if people want to make argument of the data. Yes, I understand, because you're academic, maybe they, they expect an academic uh, thing, but you're not writing a research paper, I, w- I would think.
0: Yeah, you know, uh... If you attach yourself to my name, you get a lot of a lot of visibility. I'm just going to say that. I mean, John McWhorter—I didn't even know who he was—but that article put him on the map. You know, he opened the floodgates to jump on me and critique me. Um, You know, being a public figure, you 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 are—you know—you're not a human anymore. You're not a person anymore. You're just something to to kind um, of—it feels like—chip away at and make a name for yourself in doing that. I mean, it and And let me say, um, of course, my work is open to critique, but but I have found a lot of it to to not be fair, not not really be um, based on the work itself and more on who I am and and my position.
1: yeah. Do you feel there will be in addition to the critique of your work, do you think there's more scrutiny there will be More scrutiny on your life now. You know, people will be watching you closely to see your moves, whatever action you make to now find a way to say, Gotcha, or something. Oh, sure. Do you feel like that?
0: Yes, (laughs) I do. Um, I don't wish visibility in in this way on anybody, especially visibility around race. it's easier to, to critique me because I'm white. And I understand that in the same way that it's, it's easier for white people to hear me because I'm white. It's also easier to critique me because I'm white. Right. Um, I'm not on social media. Uh, I don't think I could get up in the morning if I read it. Uh, you know, I mean, you, you read me two pieces that I happen to be aware of. Uh, but you know, you got to kind of Brace yourself <laughs> when you you know see these things that are written about you that are patently not true. I'm not talking about those two articles in particular, but there are lots of stuff goes around that you're like, that's just not true, but there's nothing you can do, right? Once they say it's you know true, it becomes true. Um, so I'm not on social media, so I'm not as visible as I was. And that has kind of toned it down a little bit and kind of helped me manage it. Because I am a person. (laughs) There is an actual human being behind that book, um, and one who never expected or sought to be visible in that way. I'm a professor and a teacher and a facilitator. And after 25 years, I just saw some things really clearly and wrote a book to help other white people see things really clearly. I don't think I've done anything bad or wrong, (laughs) although I'm sometimes treated as if I'm somehow an immoral person for doing that, which is very curious to me. So yeah, it's, uh, it's intense.
1: (laughs) You know, what I see, I see that as, um, academic uh, beef, you know, maybe some academics will be like, you know, I I should have written that book. Oh, so there is... Oh, well,
0: that's probably in there too.
1: (laughs) There is level of animosity there, uh, academic uh, animosity or rivalry uh, there. So I was wondering, you know, we're coming to the end of this interview. Is there anything you would like to add to this uh, discussion that maybe a question that you would like to talk about that I did not ask you?
0: You know, um, one of the since you brought up critiques um, is that I have profited from my book, and that people are only listening to white people, and so forth. And this is an example. Oh, not that I haven't profited. Of course, I have. I have made royalties. I have a best-selling book. That that's how that works. <laughs> um, but um, that somehow people aren't listening to black voices because they're listening to me. So, I did a little research, and over the last five years, 61 books on race have been on the New York Times bestseller list. 59 have been written by Black people. Two were written by uh, white people, one, one of which was my book. So, it's just not true that people aren't listening to Black people. But to own, and, and I don't believe white people will ever understand what we need to understand. Uh, if we aren't listening to Black people and other people of color. I think you know what it means to be white more deeply than I ever will. You had to know that. (laughs) You had to learn my reality at an early age where I didn't have to learn yours. right? But as an insider, I can offer something that you can't know. Um, and so I, I think it's okay that we also are listening to white people who have thought long and deep about these issues. We need all the, all the voices, all the approaches. So that's, that's how I reconcile that.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think there are things that you, you will be able to say to white people uh, comfortably and in a more straightforward manner that maybe a black person might not be able to say it the way you would say it to a group of white people.
0: Well, and there are things you could say to men that I can't say, and that you know that I don't know, and that you probably, it's like a little bit of that nudge, nudge, wink, wink. You know, we know how this works, but we don't show that in front of women. White people have that too. And it's harder to deny it when I say it. It's just, and that's what I'm trying to push. I'm trying to push white people to stop denying that being white has any meaning or any advantage. So yes, it was a very general message um, and it's opened a lot of white people's eyes that weren't opened before.
1: Okay, Dr. Robin DiAngelo, uh, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Pan-African Experience. Join us on Facebook at The Pan-African Experience. Follow us on Twitter, TPA Experience and follow us on Instagram, The Pan African Experience. Visit our website at www.thepanafricanexperience.com.